This is an ABC podcast. Conversations is coming to you today from Adelaide Writers Week, and my guest is the English novelist Esther Freud. Now, there are a lot of famous men in Esther's family. There's her great-grandfather, Sigmund Freud, the inventor of psychoanalysis. And there's her father, one of the giants of modern English painting, Lucian Freud. But Esther's latest novel takes its inspiration from her mother, Bernadine. She became a mum to Esther and her older sister, Bella, while she herself was still a teenager, an unmarried Irish girl in Bohemian London. In Esther's novel, I Couldn't Love You More, she's reimagined her mum's story and what might have happened if she'd taken a different path after becoming pregnant. I spoke with Esther Freud in front of a live audience earlier this week. So, Esther, it's a novel, I Couldn't Love You More, about three mothers, three generations of mothers. Can you introduce for us Rosaline, Kate and Aoife, if I'm saying her name correctly, and and explain where they are at the beginning of this story? Well, I I had this great desire when I was um, writing... It's funny, everything you, I write comes out of what I've written before. And I was writing a play set in a male prison um, about men learning to do high-end embroidery. And there was, <laughs> there was very little um, love and romance, as you can imagine. And I, the longer I went on writing this play, the more I thought, the next thing I write is going to be about love. And I'd been thinking a lot about that subject anyway. And um, I thought I would like to write about the love that's experienced by three women from three different generations. So I took, just for the ease of chronology, someone from my own life experience, my mother's and my grandmother's, and I started just really freely and playfully writing scenes about love affairs that were just beginning, love affairs that were crumbling, love affairs that were kind of in some crisis or still blossoming. Um, But what was interesting is, having wanted to write about romantic love, what I realized is that the romantic love that my characters were able to experience seemed to depend so strongly on how they'd been raised by by their mothers, by their fathers, and what they were able to access and the kind of people that they chose as a result of their own experiences. And I, you know, was aware in my family particularly that each generation has sort of rebelled against the last and chosen very differently. So Aoife is is, is an Irish woman um, from a poor rural farming family based very much on my own grandmother, who was called Kitty Fahey. And she um, is ambitious. And she comes to London and she meets somebody uh, who is ambitious too. And she she apparently, um, well, I have my character Aoife turning down various other suitors until she finds someone who's going to kind of come up in the world with her. They, they um, have three, three children, and Rosaline is the oldest of these children, born in the war, evacuated, then sent to a convent boarding school very young. And as a result, she comes of age in the late 50s, and she wants nothing to do with, with um, conservative parents, with traditional values. She wants nothing to do with Catholicism, and she is desperate to get away from the grey boredom and stifling um, sort of loneliness of her boarding school. And she falls in love with a much older bohemian artist in Soho. And this is where I really got my plot from, because I started to think about my own mother 
whose trajectory was similar, and how she had kept the secret of her two children, my sister and myself, born in the early 60s, from her mother, from her family, for many years. And I'd always known this, and I'd always thought, ah, she was quite a dramatic person, I guess, when she said she thought they were going to take us away and have her locked up, she was probably being dramatic. But once I looked into what was really going on, and doesn't seem so very long ago, but what was going on then, it was actually a real very real possibility. So I did a lot of research into mother and baby homes in Ireland, but also in England, which was actually just as brutal. People didn't have to stay in them for so long, but they were very unkind places. And I decided that this was the plot of my novel. So the younger character, Kate, um, raising her own daughter in the 90s, is, is someone who doesn't know who her family is because she was one of the children who was um, taken from her mother. And so it became a winding journey of trying to find out who you really are, who is safe to love, and what secrets have to be kept and what secrets have to be divulged. The novel is a kind of alternate history of your own mother, as you suggest, Esther, and imagining the life that she might have lived and that you, her daughter, may have lived if she had taken a different course. So tell me more about her early life. She was born in London. What were her parents doing when she was a, a baby? My, my grandparents ran a pub, as many Irish immigrants to London did run pubs. Her, she had lots of brothers who all ran pubs. So my mother, when she wasn't with the nuns, which was a lot of her time, she said she would come back to the pub, but often would be sent off again, even for holidays with the nuns. So she felt that she didn't really have much of a life with her family. And she had first been sent away from home as a baby during the war. Yes, well, because London was so badly bombed, she was evacuated. Um, it's like the, I guess I was sort of repeating with my story of adoption and the idea of that, the damage that gets done when, when a sort of relationship is broken very, you know, we, we know so much now about attachment theory and relationships getting broken when children are too young to manage them. So that was an important part of building the character of Rosaline, is that she's sent away when she's, when she's one years old. And as you'd said about your own grandmother, she was ambitious. She was a working class woman who wanted to come up in the world. She and her husband are working hard at this pub. They're saving money. What do they decide to do with that money when, uh, when their teenage daughter is 15 or so? Where did the family want to move to? Well, their ambition was to go back to Ireland, and they bought a farm. My mother was about 16. They realized she was going to the bad already, in their mind, and they insisted she come with them. Uh, they had younger children, who were still children, whereas she felt herself already to be at the beginning of her adult life. And she spent a year in Ireland as, you know, finishing school, the matric, as they called it. And then when she, soon as she was finished, she wanted to be a journalist and she went back to London where she met my father. Where did she meet him? What did she tell you and your sister about meeting Lucy um, and Freud? Well, very little. My parents were maddeningly private, fiercely independent, totally unsentimental, and I rebelled by being extremely sentimental and very, very curious. <laughs> and I was always trying to find ways of like, kind of reimagining their life, reimagining, you know, parts of their life. And, and 
I, I wrote earlier novels where I managed to wheedle out information from my father about his life, of which he almost never spoke about his earlier life. He was fiercely private. And I, I've written novels that amazed, amazed him. He was like, how did you find that out? I went, once I caught you off guard and asked you that question. And then I went and did some research on what it was like, etc. But my mother, I don't know if I could have really written about her early life and her family when she was still alive. Um, so I, I, she's there, been, her character's been there in my books, but it's only now mm -hmm. since she died that I was able to write a book like this and go this far into the sort of complexities and the dangers and, and the unresolved issues of her own family because you know, it wasn't ever really spoken of that much that she was that scared of her family, that she cut off from them for years, then we, we came back in touch with them, but you know, she always felt judged and that they, she was definitely the black sheep of the family. So if we just follow that chronology of, of her as a young woman in London in the 1950s, 16 or 17, she, she meets your father. What was the age difference between them? The age difference was nearly 20 years. So she, I, actually one of the early chapters in my book was, 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 is, is the imagined meeting of Rosaline and Felix Lichtman, both based on my parents. And as a, one of the really wonderful things about being a novelist is you tell your stories and you put them out there into the world. And then often people come back with their own stories that reflect yours or are the real story. So when this book was first published, um, I got a, a message through my website saying, I was with your parents when they met. Wow. Would you like to hear the story? I was like, please, if only I'd have heard from you before I wrote this scene. <laughs> anyway, I'd always imagined that they'd met in a famous pub in Soho called the French Pub where, that I'd often been to. And oddly enough, when I was 16 and moved to London, I often had assignations of my own there until someone pointed out, do you know you've never had a date at the French pub that's gone well? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, maybe I should meet someone somewhere else. Anyway, so I wrote my, my romantic scene of them having their, their first real romantic meeting there. But it turned out that in fact, they'd met at a nightclub. It wasn't so different, but I had more gorgeous detail. They met at a nightclub called Le Cave de France and he, uh, Lucien apparently had uh, already had gone, had started to talk to the woman who was writing me the story and had said, probably in rather flirtatious manner, oh, he'd love to do a painting of this woman. He admired her beautiful froggy eyes. So I knew it was true because who else would use a pickup line like that? And uh, she was totally uninterested. Whereas when he turned his attention to my mother, being of much more courageous, open-minded, and anarchic person. She was instantly fascinated and, I think, possibly went home with him that night. And that was the beginning of a long love affair. We're in this cultural moment now, Esther, where we're so attuned to power differentials in relationships and assume that age automatically brings with it a very specific kind of power differential. Do you think that was the case with your parents? Well, yes and no. I think things have changed in many ways for the best, but I also think certainly my children, we, we refer to them as being fascists because they are, my 18-year-old son was saying how he just met this lovely girl and, you know, she's actually the daughter of a friend, she's 16. I said, maybe you should see each other again. He said, oh, mom, she's 16, that would be disgusting. <laughs> 
And I just think they're kind of missing out. I don't feel so strongly about age difference. I, I've had much too much experience from the generation above mostly, but friends who've had huge successful love affairs. I think life is too precious to make these, these boundaries for yourself. Um, my, my parents were involved, obviously for long enough to have two children, but even j just a few weeks before my father died, my mother went to visit him hmm. and spent time with him and they stayed they stayed supportive and admiring friends for the whole of their lives. Post Me Too, I think a lot of women have thought about incidences in their own lives or stories they've heard from friends or family and thought about them differently and thought maybe what I just brushed aside or, or didn't consider in a certain way, there was more to it. Has that any of those conversations around feminism shifted any of your thinking about that romance? That romance? Um, hmm, yes. I mean, you know, I could just go so many ways in the way I think about these kinds of relationships. And I think that my mother, um, in some ways she suffered a lot because she, she found herself totally unsupported because she was too scared to tell her family that she was alone with two children. And she was alone. But at the same time, she said to me, because I was able to ask her this question, that it was what she wanted, to have what she wanted and to be free. She said to her, the idea of being trapped in the kind of marriage that her parents had is how she saw it. I mean, actually, I saw them as old people in a real love affair in so many ways. I saw something different when I looked at them as I got older. But I think that she just wanted an alternative life. And, you know, she didn't regret, she didn't have regrets. But there's no doubt she didn't suffer. But then, you know what? You can marry someone of the same age and have financial security and be lonely as hell. Mm. So. so when she became pregnant, first with your older sister, Bella, and then with you, she didn't tell her parents back in Ireland at all? No, they, um, they only discovered when a relative saw her at a bus stop with two little girls and wrote to Ireland and said, I didn't know your daughter was married. Oh. And um, then, and then, then the news came in a letter from them, and they said, you've made your bed, now you must lie on it. And it was some years before the atmosphere softened enough. And then what's so sad about that time, where so many young women would have been sent into mother and baby homes, which is where my book goes as an alternative reality to my mother's life, and that the, the, the young women lost their mm -hmm. children, the children lost their mothers, but the grandparents lost their grandchildren. So when I was about six and we'd come back from this Moroccan adventure that my mother had, she just decided she had enough of the repressive society that she was living in, in, in some poverty in London where she had to wear a wedding ring, pretend to be married. People were twitching curtains and looking at her very disapprovingly. So she set off with some friends for North Africa. We stayed for a year and a half, had an absolute incredible adventure. And this is the basis, of course, of your first novel, yeah. Hideous so Kinky. Yeah, so thank you, Mum, for that, because <laughs> I wanted to be a writer. I was like, if only I had a story to tell. I was, And then one day I went, oh, actually, I have a story. Maybe I'll try writing that. What an interesting story. Yeah, but yeah. I, you know, didn't realise that for, well, I was only 26 when I started, but those years between around 22 when I decided I wanted to write and realising I had a story, they seemed long. Sometimes what's right in front of you is the last thing you see. So she, when she came back, her, her parents came over from Ireland and we all met. And of course, no one can resist their own grandchildren and they're, they're, 
everything changed and we spent every summer on their farm with them after that. There's so much there to unpack, Esther. I think I'm going to jump back into the fictional, uh, the fictional mother in this story, into Rosaline and her life, who, unlike your mother, doesn't make the decision or feel that she's able to keep the child that she um, has uh, as an unmarried woman, and so turns to a priest, and he suggests that she goes to one of these mother-baby homes, Magdalene Laundries in Ireland. What happened when you went to, to go to one of those yourself in the research for this book? You know, it's been closed down, but to go to where one was and try to find out more about what life would have been like for the young women who were there. Well, one of, one of the things I found out in my, in my research was that uh, obviously, because I was thinking, oh, she's in London, maybe she should go to a mother and baby home in England, which I discovered there were many, but I wanted her really to go back to Ireland for various plot twists later. Um, and I discovered that young women who went to a priest in Ireland, um, the, the British government had said, we have enough of these young women uh, on our doorstep coming over. They knew nothing about the facts of life. Often within months, they were pregnant. So they had set up a system between the Irish and the British government where they would get on a ferry, there would be a nun waiting for them who would escort them off the ferry at the other side. There would be a car and they would take them to a mother and baby home, somewhere like Besborough in Cork, the, the Sacred Heart, um, Convent of the Sacred Heart, just outside Cork City, and they would be incarcerated there for three years. Three years? Three years. They could not leave before three years unless somebody came with 100 pounds and basically bought them out. But what the women almost never realized was even then they would never be allowed to leave with their baby. And so women went to these places with no idea, often being told by the priest they'd just be helped. And um, so when I went to do some research, I was quite far into my novel. I, I ideally like never to do research. I want just to sit in my room and make it all up, but I always get stuck and have to kind of go out. And then I'm so glad that I did. And um, so I, I went across to Ireland and I went to this, um, the convent of the Sacred Heart Mother and Baby Home, only closed down in 1997. And um, it's now um, a family support center, which is good to see but slightly ironic. And um, I went and asked for some information or how I could find information about someone in 1963, which is when I was born, who, you know, how, someone looking to track a woman who gave birth there. They were really unhelpful. And eventually I kind of cracked and said, actually, I was born here. And they still would not give me any information. And I thought that's how hard it still is to track your birth mother mm. if you were born into a home like this. And there are numerous painful stories about women who have no, never been able to meet up with their children. Children, especially from America, because people came often and adopted the children from America, partly because they had more money and they could pay the Catholic Church a lot of money for each baby. It was a huge money-making racket, is the truth. The, the nuns bemoaned this, these sinful girls, but they were also going, Hmm, we're running a little bit low on girls because they, they clipped the lawn, they milked the cows, they sold flowers in the market, they, um, they did all the laundry, they made money. It was a big, it was a big factory mm. of unpaid workers. That's why they kept them for three years. And the way that you describe it, and I imagine this chimes with what you found out in your research, is they weren't just working 
to make money for these for these homes, but that was a work as a kind of punishment as well. It was a punitive yeah. aspect to everything that these young women were being forced to do. Well, there was a punitive aspect to the way they were looked after, especially during labor and childbirth. It was actually so distressing to read. And I found an amazing book written by a midwife who, as a young woman, had worked at Besborough. And many years later, she felt so compelled to tell the story of what really went on there that with the help of her daughter, she wrote this book. And it described just what the women went through and how shocked she was. She had been um, working as a midwife in Cork in a hospital. And the sister of the convent had come and said, we need a midwife. We, you know, we need help. Um, which was lucky for the girls because she at least had training and was kind but she was not allowed to give a single woman any stitches, however badly torn they were, because they had sinned against the Lord and they must pay for their sins. And they were never given any, any sort of aftercare. And after 10 days of feeding their babies, they were made to leave them in the nursery where they listened to them cry. Mm. I mean, one of the really shocking things, and it's, there's been a big report into mother and baby homes, just published last year in Ireland, is just how many thousands of babies died in these homes and that it's never been uncovered where they were buried. So they didn't get baptized. They weren't given any kind of respectful burial. And when I went back to Besborough, one of the shocking things was is that there was a little graveyard there, but it was only the graves of the nuns. And there's a huge campaign group still demanding information and they are not giving it. And these people who were in charge of these homes are slowly dying without giving the information to the women whose babies died there and they are still grieving them without knowing what happened to them. As you just described it, so these young women weren't always clear that their babies were going to be taken for adoption, is that? Well, yes, they often had no idea that they thought that they would, you know, so there's a story, um, people have been collecting these stories. Um, there's a story of a 15 year old girl who is tell, whose mother realizes when the buttons start popping off her skirt that she's pregnant. She's, she, the mother herself is terrified. She takes her daughter to the priest who thinks, you know, the priest is the head of the community, the father who is going to help his, his flock. He says, I know some people who will be able to help with a pram because they're so poor. And sh she is taken away into this home. The first thing that happens in one of these homes is you're asked to change your name mm -hmm. and never speak of anything that happened not to mention your name of your family, basically shame descends upon the whole situation. And so um, the parents don't really know what's happened to her. It's not that anyone necessarily wanted the, their daughters to be punished in this way, but they think at least she won't be stigmatized. And the idea is when, when the young women leave, and they weren't actually always young women, sometimes it was, there was one story of a school teacher in her early 40s who found herself in this situation. She, she didn't know. This is described in the midwife's book. But um, when they leave, they are allowed to reclaim their names. And the idea is they never speak of it. So it's actually been really in the last decade or so that women have started to kind of burst forward with their stories as the power of the church in Ireland particularly has demolished. And, and all the stories of the cru cruelty and the abuse have come out. Women are starting to go, Actually, I had a baby, and I still don't know. I mean, Philomena, the, the wonderful film with Judy Dench, that, that was a very important film. And, and there, there's another film called The, the Magdalena Sisters. And I, I said to my mother, 
um, how I'd watched it. And it was the first time I really thought about what she told me and how she'd been too scared to tell her parents about the fact she was a mother. And she said, it was much worse than that. And actually, women whose stories were taken for that film say it was much worse than that. So you can only tell so much without people turning away in too much distress. And I tried not to, just to not put anyone off. I also tried really hard in this book to show that these, this baby was conceived in love and romance and joyous, life-affirming 1960s London, and that there was many stories in this book, and that a big thread of it is love between many different people, and even from Rosaline's parents. There was never their desire for her to end up in the mother and baby home. As you say, you, you didn't want to... Uh, you wanted it to be a book that is pleasurable to read, a, a story that has pain in it, but also has that human warmth at its heart, which it does. But, of course, that moment of separation between the mother and her baby is so distressing to read. And I was thinking how difficult it must have been for you to inhabit that space imaginatively, given that that could have been your mother and it could have been your sister or, or yourself. What was it like writing that part of the story? Well, actually, David Hare last night in his conversation, which I'm sure some of you heard, said such a beautiful and kind of true thing about ideas for writing is that often the second half of a piece of work is kind of already there, that you've managed to get to the second half, and it's kind of there, and you have to like chip away, almost like you're chipping away from stone as you make a kind of sculpture. And so I knew that part of the book was waiting for me, and it felt almost like a technical exercise to try and bring it to life. Whereas the first half of the book, I was trying to make it real, pour my imagination into breathing life into it so that I had all my characters. But I knew that in the second half of the book, that was the story that was the important story and the story I needed to tell. It was really painful. And I remember thinking, oh, write a book about love. Now I'm in a mother and baby home. I didn't think this through. <laughs> but uh, you can't plan it all out, that's for sure. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. As you mentioned, Esther, your mother took you and, and your sister Bella off in 1967 to this adventure in, in Morocco. You were only a little child. When you came to write about that experience for Hideous Kinky, did you go to your mum for details about what she remembered? I did. I still have her words on tape, which I'm so glad that I do. So I, I started writing it, and I, I thought I, my head was my whole childhood. I came back to England when I was six. For years, I um, had my head full of kind of memories and anecdotes and stories and visual images. Um, and I thought, well, I have plenty for a book. And I started to write and found that it filled like three or four pages <laughs> and I was totally done. And so I struggled and I made a very complicated structure for myself. I was flashing back and forth and an older child, etc. 
And I got some help on a creative writing course, and they were like, oh, for God's sake, it sounds like you have a great story. Just tell it from the beginning to the end. I was like, I can't do that because I don't remember enough. And she went, it's fiction, make it up. <laughs> I was like, oh, my life? I can make up my life? It was a great thing, of course. It's fiction. You're not writing it as a memoir. So I went outside there and then, and I just wrote a scene of, you know, a mother and two little girls and a group of friends in a big van driving across Spain to the ferry in Algeciras. And, and I just thought, yeah. So I sort of continued in that vein. But every so often, I would remember something. I'd, I'd re I remembered, like, a scene, a tiny snippet. And then I would think, mm, I wish I could just remember more. So I would ask my mother about this, and she would expand, and then tell it from her point of view. She once told me a story that I turned around. Uh, so she said that one day she was walking through the market in, in the middle of Marrakesh, this famous Jamafna in the square, and she saw, she saw two little girls selling oranges, and she thought, oh. And as she got closer, she realized it was me and my sister. <laughs> and um, anyway, she kind of thought, well, clearly, they're doing something private, and she walked on and pretended she hadn't seen us. I do remember this, that we were always trying to get money to buy her presents. She seemed so on her own. We were always, like, I remember once we gave her a casserole dish. I don't know how much she appreciated that. I guess we were trying to get her to be, as we longed for, normal, make a casserole. Um, but we must have been trying to make some money, maybe to buy her something for Christmas. We found some money, we bought some oranges, and we like, decided to sell them for a bit more in order to make enough money to buy some mulberries, which seemed more exotic and glamorous than oranges. <laughs> anyway, she would tell me something, and I'd think, God, I wonder what it was like from our point of view. How was she supporting you financially in Morocco? She's only 24 or so, wasn't yeah. she? Yeah, well, she had, um, she'd been living on child benefit, um, and she managed to get the child benefit sent out to wherever she was and collected it from the, the post restaurant. So I remember crazy days spent waiting at the post restaurant for this like money to come through in kind of, you know, um, like a kind of postal order. And when they made the film of Hideous Kinky, she was waiting for money from my father, but I don't think, even if he had wanted to give money, he could have ever been organized to send money to North Africa. No way. There's also a scene in the film where he sends the wrong parcel. He sent it to the wrong family to make it clear he has some other children. But the idea he would have remembered it was Christmas. I mean, my father, all he wanted to do was paint. He didn't send parcels at Christmas. He didn't stop for Christmas Day. You know, that just wasn't. So people are trying to kind of imagine my life to fit in with a conventional family. But it just really wasn't like that. <laughs> Were there times that you remember being scared in Morocco? I mean, your mother was on this adventure, this bohemian adventure, which is what she wanted from her life. But for you as a little girl, were there, there times where it, it felt a scary place to be in terms of the, the lack of security there? Yeah, it was a scary place to be. I was really hit by that when I went back. When I finished the book, I was about 28, and I, I was really scared to go back before um, because I thought, what if I sort of made it up like a kind of mirage? What if, what if it's just completely different and everything that I've put down on these pages has to be rewritten and it's just, who, who am I to write about this country that I left when I was six years old? And I arrived back. I actually went with a childhood friend who'd had a very similar childhood traveling through India and her little girl of nine months and we arrived and I was assailed 
by these just incredible sense memories, the way it smelt, the way it sounded, people who looked familiar, and the way children were treated as if they were gifts from God. Everyone, even in the airport, came and lifted little, my little goddaughter up and held her to their chest. But I was also scared. I was scared when little girl got ill, of course. I was scared when we got lost in the, in the, in the winding souks. And I remembered how, how scared I had been as a child. It was, it was overstimulating. When I got back to England, I didn't... People often talk when they're on these stages about books meant everything to them as a child. I didn't learn to read and write till I was nearly 11. My head was so full. I was overwhelmed with sort of over, overstimulation. All I wanted to do was like, tell stories about, you know, riding in the saddlebag of a donkey up a mountain, etc. I, I couldn't concentrate on whatever... Anton B, I think. I was like, yeah, I couldn't so do it. So when you left Morocco and came back to England, did it feel very drab, very dismal in, in contrast? It did. I mean, it was. We actually went to a Steiner school, which was, which was lucky for me, because they didn't mind that I couldn't read or write. They had, they had um, other criteria for thinking you were developing well. Knitting. I was good at knitting. <laughs> that was highly praised, thank God. Um, but... We lived in Sussex, and it was drab. You know, everyone shut their door, and people lived inside. And in Morocco, everyone lived outside. People were in the street. There was music. Everyone, every single night, went to the Jamafna, and there was music playing, and people telling stories, and, you know, religious gurus getting people to come and listen to their inspiring people doing handstands, acrobats, and, and food being cooked outside. And, oh, I just couldn't believe. It just felt so sort of... Gray, and I, I really missed, I really missed that life. Things were still pretty tight financially. How did your mum help, uh, help it still feel that things were special, even if you didn't have much money? How was home still somewhere beautiful? Well, it was interesting because I had a conversation the other day about like the inspiration of having a creative father. But I said. My father inspired me so much with his incredible work ethic and how he showed us that if you could make your life, the center of your life about your own creativity and making something, that would be a great way to live. But what my mother showed me was you could be creative in every aspect of your life. So she was always making things. Even in Morocco, she, she made dolls out of the scraps of wool that fell down from the wool dyeing street and tried to sell them in the market. But when we moved a lot, as we did, Sometimes we would move somewhere. I remember she just wallpapered the kitchen, put new liner on the floor, found an old sofa in a skip, which she re-upholstered. I was like, now, I have to say, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm always like looking up someone to pay hundreds <laughs> of pounds to who can mend, you know, who can hem something for me. I think, how have I lost this skill? Just to be totally resourceful. But she was very young and she had um, a huge amount of energy and, and very little money and she tried to, to turn things around and make it, um, make it as good as it could be. So you were living this very close life with your mother, your mother and you and, and your sister as this little unit. When do you first remember meeting your father? Um, hmm. My first real memory of him is he came to visit us in, in Sussex. I must have been about six or seven. And he arrived in a... He always had a flash car. He never had much money or anywhere much to live, but he loved a car. Anyway, my mother was learning to drive, and she must have said, I don't know how I'm ever going to afford a car. And he said, have this car. And she said, it's a, 
one of the only times I remember them having a row, she went, I can't drive around in that red sports car. Are you insane? I couldn't even afford to look after it or put it with petrol. Anyway, he backed off. And I remember that when she passed the driving test, she bought an, a Ford Anglia. I don't know if anyone knows what that is, but it's the most basic, juddery, tinny little car. And we drove around in that because at least she could afford, when it went wrong, to have it mended. So that's my first memory. What did you make of him as a child? It's so hard to describe him. It was a bit like if you're at school and the coolest person in the whole school suddenly chooses you to be their friend. That's what I felt like. It was like, really? We get to hang out with him. He was just so much fun and he was quite childlike. So then, you know, from fairly early on, we would go and visit him in London. He would come and take us sometimes. Once he took us to Scotland and he drove so fast that he was pulled over by the police and they they said, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but you've been driving, you know, over 100 miles an hour for the last hour without looking in your mirror. And he said, oh, I'm in a bit of a hurry to get to Scotland. And they said, oh, you seem to actually have crossed the border into Wales. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what it was like. <laughs> what was it like being painted by him? Uh, well, it was, it was fabulous. So my sister moved to London before me, and I had I discovered by then that I had quite a lot of other brothers and sisters, mostly sisters, and they all lived in London. And I was, I was like hanging on for those last few years in Sussex, desperate to join what I felt was this exciting, glamorous group. So as soon as I turned 16, I was there, and um, he, he was painting them often. And so I was like, you know, I, I'm now free any day of the week. So I started sitting for him twice a week. It was great. So I had a kind of ready-made something to do twice a week a job because he would, uh, he didn't really pay me, but he gave me some money for a taxi and I got the bus home. So I had quite a lot of money every week, as he knew I would, obviously. I mean, no self-respecting 16-year-old gets a taxi. So I got to know him really well over that nine months of the first painting. And at the end of that nine months, I went to Italy with him on holiday. I didn't know then that he almost never, ever left London. I've hardly known him to leave since. And I, uh, I actually used that as the basis of a novel as well. Careful what you tell me. It'll all come out eventually in some form. Would he talk to you while he was painting you? Was that a time that you would speak to one another? Yes. He loved... Well, what I've discovered more recently about him, there's a wonderful book of letters from his early life that's just been published. And somebody kind of came up with a theory from reading these letters, how different each one is to, depending on who he was writing it to that I was going to say he loved a story, but he, he was able, he was very, very adjustable. So when I was with him, he seemed to love everything I loved, but maybe when he was with someone else, he loved the things that they loved. So relationships, people felt very, very close to him and very chosen by him and very special in his company because he had the true meaning of charisma. He made you feel like you were the only person in, in his world in that moment because it was, such a, it was such a present experience. You're there in his studio in those hours. He didn't give his telephone number out, so very few people had his number. And so you weren't interrupted and you would talk and he would tell stories. He loved to tell joke stories. He loved to sing songs. He had an amazing memory for any kind of lyric. But he also loved to hear about my friends, so I would tell him, stories about everyone. So he knew all my friends, even if he'd never met them. And then he would always ask for updates, like, 
what happened to that friend of yours whose mother had her teeth wired together so she couldn't eat anything? I was like, oh, you're not going to believe it. She moolied the food and she managed to siphon it in, and, you know. Anyway, he knew everything and it was great fun to spend time with him. He painted many famous subjects, of course, including the Queen. What do you think they spoke about? If he could always be who that person wanted to be, yeah, who well, was he with Her Majesty? They got on like a house on fire because he was crazy about horses, horse racing, gambling, which he may not have talked so much. So they just <laughs> talked about horses and horse racing. He told me that he'd said to her, it must be such a terrible strain, all these duties. What do you do when you just can't face it? And she said, high fever, first thing in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> What great advice from the Queen. I'm going to yeah. use that. <laughs> what was the last painting that he made of you, Esther? Well, once I had children of my own, I just, I was already writing. I was writing my third novel at that time. And I did not feel I had time to sit for him. But I did sit for him with my newborn baby son. And I thought, you know what? He's so tiny. Let's get this over. And so when he was 10 days old, I said, I'm ready. I don't know what, I'd had a cesarean. I don't know what I was thinking. I walked the five flights up to his studio and I sat. And of course, the painting took forever. My son refused to just lie still like the other babies I'd seen. I'd seen these beautiful babies serenely lying on a cushion. My son would never stop feeding. So in the end, it's a picture of an enormous bosom, tiny baby. <laughs> And as it went on, he got so big that he had to cut the ends of the baby grow off. So his feet and his hands, like, like the incredible hunk, just like shot through. He was about five months old when it was finally finished. And um, I was totally exhausted. But actually, when they got on, my father was fairly extreme in his likes and dislikes. So he would, I saw it happen when my son was born because I'd always known that he took a get, he liked people on first sight or he took against them, which was a scary way as well to grow up. You thought, oh, you know, you could just suddenly fall out of favor. He came to the hospital the day my son was born and he took an instant liking to him, which was great. But when, so when he was eight, um, he said he paint him again. And that time I wasn't in the painting, but because my son was a bit, you know, reluctant to sit there still for every Sunday, I sat in the corner and read him The Hobbit. And of course, it meant I was also reading my father, The Hobbit. And occasionally, he'd interject and say, hmm, spiders, I don't think of them as communal creatures exactly. You know, <laughs> he had all these ideas about the strange Bilbo Baggins experiences. Um, but so I felt slightly as if I was sat for painting them, but I didn't actually sit again. <laughs> of course, now his work is in galleries all around the world. Is it like being able to visit bits of him when you visit galleries in, and see his work in different places? It is, it is a lovely thing, it really is. I was in Sydney um, a few weeks ago and I met a friend of mine for lunch in the Art Gallery Cafe. And um, when I arrived, I said, oh, do you have, and I was too embarrassed as if anyone would even know who I was. I said, do you have any uh, Francis Bacon? I thought, well, if they have Francis Bacon, maybe Lucien Freud would be quite close. And they said, oh yes, yes. And then I, I kind of couldn't see any Lucien Freud. So I said, oh, oh, do you have any Lucien Freud? As if I just thought of it. And they said, yes, but it's in storage. Because what people don't realize is, Art galleries have so many paintings and they revolve them, they're always there. Anyway, my friend, being without any of my reluctance, she had rung ahead and said, I thought it would be so nice for her to see some of her father's paintings. And while we were having lunch, they got them couriered in from the storage unit and I was told your father's paintings are down in the basement. 
And so I was taken down to the basement where not only were two of his paintings, particularly beautiful paintings down there, but there was a Picasso, there was a Francis Bacon. There was just the most <laughs> incredible, almost better than the ones in the gallery. And I was like, why are all these paintings hiding down here? But anyway. Was, just waiting for the daughters of the artists yeah, to turn up to turn and up. ask to see them. <laughs> and we were, it was lovely. There was one painting which I really haven't seen for about 20 years. It was so lovely to see it. So I was grateful that they're around the world. Hmm. As you described, Esther, his emphasis, Lucian Freud's emphasis on work, on his devotion to his work and work being the absolute centre of his life. How did that feel as a child, as the child of such uh, an artist with that commitment? Did it feel like you, you were always going to be second best? You were always going to lose in that competition with his devotion to his work? You know, I think children are very accepting. I didn't judge it. I didn't see there was any alternative. Even as you got older? Well, what was interesting is that he wasn't very close to his, any of his children when he was growing up. But as teenagers and young adults, he became closer to his children, partly because he used them as models and he also you, you know, loved their company and we would always go for dinner and, and he would support me. I was an actress in my previous life and he would always come to every play. Once I rang him and said, oh, the show's cancelled. I was doing a little cabaret. You had to have more people in the audience that are on stage. That wasn't the case. He said, I'm on my way. He got his model. He phoned around. He rushed in his fast car to, um, to the show in a, in a room above a pub. And um, so he was incredibly involved and supportive. So I didn't feel that way about him. And my friends didn't seem to have anything to do with their fathers. So I felt kind of lucky. As he was having this huge career as a painter, what sort of adventures was your mother having after you and your sister had grown up? Well, my mother was always reinventing herself. She trained as a teacher, and then later she um, trained as a journalist, something she'd always wanted to do. She then trained as a dance teacher. She was totally passionate about dance. Then she trained as a gardener, and she died, sadly, much too young, and she was, she was actually at an Egyptian dance workshop when she felt ill and drove herself to hospital. Wow. So she was a life force. Yeah. I read that in Sussex she was a tree warden. What is such a role of tree warden? Well, actually, that was in the last few years of her life, and she... she um, what is a tree warden? Do you know, I'm still not totally certain, but it's someone who walks around the area, the boundary area of their village, and checks on the health of the trees, makes sure that those trees come to no harm, they're not chopped down um, by someone who cares less about them, and that they're in good health. And that's, that's what a marvelous actually, job. in her community, when she died, somebody planted a tree for her, which I go and visit every year, often more than that, but on, on her birthday and on the date of her death, and I go and sit, and this tree is, is doing very, very well. Hmm. You mentioned right at the beginning that in this book you were wanting to explore different kinds of love and at first you thought it was going to be romantic love and then you realised it was maternal love and when you would go and spend those holidays with your Irish grandparents, what did you notice about the kind of relationship that your grandparents had and the version of love that dominated in their life? How, how did it appear to you? Well, I saw what seemed to me a fairly bullying, misogynistic man calling his wife woman and telling her to get on with the lunch, etc. I loved my nana. I was a bit scared of my grandfather. But as I got older, 
I saw that they were involved in a kind of game. It was a kind of dance. So they always worked together, running a pub and then running the farm. And my, my grandmother had a, a bread and breakfast, so she was very hardworking. And that when he kind of said, woman, uh, do this, that actually he was kind of flirting with her. And I saw later that he totally adored her and admired her. And um, I understood something different as the years passed. And in terms of the allegiances that she had, and maybe typically of her generation, to her husband as opposed to her children, how do you think that played out in, in her life, in her heart? Well, you know, I think it was so hard for women of that generation particularly, even more traditional women of my mother's generation, where the idea is that you show a united front and that you, your, your husband was for life, your children came and went. I feel my generation, it's like, your children are for life, your, your men will come and go. And, uh, and you know, relationships have changed so much with that attitude. And I think that women who are older, I think even my mother was like, you know, careful not to be too obsessed with your children. Maybe, maybe spare a moment for that man who's like on the outside kind of waving. Um, so my grandmother, I think it must have been incredibly hard for her to see that because um, my grandfather was so strict and so frightened for my mother, I'm giving him the credit of assuming that, but basically appalled by what he saw as her, her kind of amoral behavior or untraditional behavior. Whereas, I don't know, my grandmother seemed to totally buy into it, but really, could she in her heart have done so? I don't, I don't know. And I think the, the questions of where your loyalties are to your partner or your child or your parent, all of these get inflected differently again when the work that you're doing is as an artist, as you are, as a writer. How did you make that work for, for yourself as, as an artist and a mother? Well, writing actually fits in pretty well. If you can have maybe five hours, you can get so much done. If you, if you can be organised enough to work in the school day, it's a, it's a good mix. And I wanted, I have to say, I wanted it all. I wanted to be disciplined and creative, and I also wanted to, to do other creative things in my life as well, including bringing up children. Your mother passed away, as you say, suddenly, 10 years or so ago now. Yeah. Was writing this book and imagining the young Rosalina a way to have a conversation with her again? Yeah, it's a real luxury. I felt that I was able to spend time with her just in my head for, you know, a good few years as I wrote this book. And um, it meant a lot to me to be able to do that without feeling that in any way I was, I was going to get into trouble. I thought, well, I couldn't have written this book when she was alive. Nothing would make up for the 20 or years I felt I was missed or 30 years I was hoping for. But it was a little consolation. Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking Esther Freud. Thank you so much. <laughs> Esther Freud was my guest on Conversations today and Esther and I were speaking in front of an audience at Adelaide Writers Week and Esther's latest novel is called I Couldn't Love You More. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.